The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 53. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Thank you, Sally. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the original series episode, The Corbomite Maneuver. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Well, it, uh, The Corbomite Maneuver, this is, like I said, the original series. It was the second episode of the original series produced. Uh, but it was shown 10th because NBC decided to mess with everything and yeah. <laughs> rearrange the order that they produce stuff in. TV stations never do that. Isn't that right, Firefly? Oh, uh. <laughs> exactly. You can kind of tell if you, if you know that this was the first one they produced after the two pilots, you can kind of tell this was meant as a series introduction because like Kirk has this, okay, every department, give me your report. And so right. that's a way of introducing mm-hmm. the characters to us. And some of the stuff is not yet finalized. Uh, the costumes, like Uhura is yeah. still wearing gold, and and some right. of the some of the set stuff was still uh, going to change in the future. Mm-hmm. It's it also interesting. This is a bottle episode. Um, I mean, it all occurs on the Enterprise except for one yep. scene, and, right. and that scene was obviously redesigned parts of the Enterprise. So yeah. Yeah, right. normally bottle episodes. So bottle episodes are where you just use your existing sets. You don't do anything else. And um, and normally they're used as a cost saving measure. But here they're right at the beginning of a season in production order. They're 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 as cash flush as they're going to be, mm-hmm. and they're doing a bottle episode, which is kind of interesting. It, I I didn't see anything in the uh, in the behind the scenes sort of information, but. I wonder if they had plans for more ambitious epi- scripts in episodes yeah. later on, and so they were saving up front. Like, I, well, I, and, I wonder. And it would also make sense if this was an introductory episode that to show as much of the sets and the people as they could, you know, instead yeah. of having other locations that they're constantly bouncing around to. That's mm-hmm. true. That's true. Yeah, I just know you have to be careful doing the the Corbomite maneuver. I threw my back out once doing that. <laughs> mm. Well, I was thinking, is there anything like the Picard maneuver? But uh, yeah. apparently not. <laughs> so it's this like the is... opposite of the Picard maneuver, apparently. Yeah. By the way, one one way to tell this is early days is l- watch Leonard Nimoy's performance, especially at the beginning of this episode. Yep. Nimoy has commented on how the first ones they taped, he was in this like bellicose first officer mode. And you can you can hear he's he's got this really theatrical thing in his voice that he's doing that's more emotional than he would come to be, even mm-hmm. though they talk about he doesn't have normal earth emotions in this one. Um, he's like, stand by to photograph. And he's, <laughs> yeah, he's calling and, orders. And yes, it, which we saw in the pilots he he, he would do as well. Uh, it, even right from the, the cage, the very first pilot, he yells mm-hmm. out from the, the helm what he's doing so it's uh yeah it's an interesting 
it'll it'll vary after t- after a while. Other things, uh, they're still working out the tech. You know, things like Sulu is the one who gets sensor alerts, and the deflectors aren't shields per se, but they the way they talk about them, they it's, it's like something that reaches out at a distance to push things away, and so they're well, working out the, some of that the, stuff. That's standard actually in Star Trek. The shields are. Mm-hmm. Are are different than the deflectors. The deflectors are to push items out of their way, right? right like on right. oncoming meteorites and stuff. Yeah, I guess in the in the original series, sometimes they the writers did not make the distinction as often as they do later. But yeah, okay, it, it, I see that. And yeah. Interestingly, one thing with the uh, with the, well, they actually call them deflector shields in this, so they right. kind mm-hmm. of blur them. Um, one thing that's in the original series writers' guide is. We're never going to get specific about what our sensors are. They're just called right. sensors, and they always work. Right. <laughs> right. Although they are photographing in order to make yeah. their maps. Well, but yeah, then you get then you get TNG where like they're going down to the infinite detail of what what particle they're censoring from what part of the ship. Right. <laughs> so this is also a first episode for McCoy, Uhura, and Janice Rand, all of whom get stuff to do yep. uh, and, Rand, and uhura has green nail polish <laughs> and the boop mm. green hoop earrings green hoop earrings those. Uh, <laughs> and like i said she's wearing gold sulu is now uh at the helm instead of its science and the, right. the previous in the pilot he was in you know, where no man has gone before he was astrophysics uh he was, but yeah, they, so he had a blue uniform then yeah and i think mm-hmm. the producers realized uh they don't need an astrophysicist in every episode but they want sulu to be up front so right. let's get him. And again, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but the how uh, groundbreaking it was to have a Japanese American mm-hmm. on the bridge as one of your main crew only 20 years after World War II. Yeah. That was pretty, mm-hmm. you know, a little plus Uhura there well, as well. And so. Uhura, the civil rights movement, is at its peak right now. Yes. So that yeah. was controversial. Well, a female black officer, um, com officer was right. pretty incredible for that time. Yep. So they're, uh, the, the, the way it starts, they're making star maps of an unexplored uh, sector, emphasizing the nature of their travels, that they're out beyond known space and that sort of thing. And they're attacked by a giant space Rubik's Cube uh, that— Not so much <laughs> just attacked a- as just stopped and prevented annoyed. from going anywhere. They're annoyed <laughs> yeah. by a giant— rotating colored cube it's essentially your big brother i'm not touching you not touching you not touching you (laughs) (laughs) so uh i do like so this is where we really get the emphasis when you if you watch this on netflix or amazon or any dvd or whatever out there you're going to see the remastered special effects in 2009 Mm -hmm. they remastered the special effects of the original series and so they look really good and Mm -hmm. uh and it's very interesting to see what they remaster and what they don't and what how they change it and where they keep stated the true to the original um although like, it, it is, is it is funny it? though for be since they are 10 year old special effects they are starting to show their age just a little bit when you compare yeah. it to something like discovery yes yeah. exactly although i th- i think they intentionally stayed a little not as good as they could have been even could 10 be. years mm-hmm. 10 years ago and they uh, still look good they still a lot better than the original mo- wireframe model or, or models and everything you know floating yes. models and everything that they have uh, this floating uh, space buoy that they encounter reflects off the hull of the Enterprise and everything. Mm-hmm. You see the colors, so you Which get stuff it, it, like that. It didn't in the original, right? right. It did not. Uh, so uh, they they encounter this. It's interesting that Spock Spock is in charge of the bridge. Kirk is nowhere to be seen throughout the open, which is very interesting, given that this is the first regular season episode produced for the introduction of the, the series. 
that he doesn't call Kirk to the bridge right away. He's, he's I know. in command, uh, which is very interesting. What? It's like, you just encountered an alien thing. It's like, get on the horn and call the captain up here. Well, he tried. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah, that's coming up. So Yohora says she's get, not getting a signal, but they don't seem to try to communicate with it very well. Like, no, no signal on the handling frequencies. Are you trying to talk to it? Maybe we're supposed to assume that they are. Um, mm. One one thing I really like cinematically in this is, you know, they try moving around it. Spock yes. says, yep. you know, pilot us, of course, around this thing. And so we see it start to drift off to the right of the view screen. And then it just drifts back left to center screen. So we yep. know it's a nice way of relative motion indicating this thing is not letting them go around it. Right. Right. Uh, so Bailey is the navigator right now on the on the right side of the command console next to Sulu. And he's we he gets a little panicky, maybe, or he raises mm-hmm. his voice and yep. uh, foreshadowing and mm-hmm. Spock admonishes him for it. And uh, Bailey kind of comes back uh, after this is all over. He defends himself that it was this. It's a human thing called adrenaline. Spock has and, a great line where he says, uh, "That sounds inconvenient. Uh, you ought to have consider having it removed." <laughs> yeah. And then and then Sulu looks at Bailey and says, "Cross brains with Spock, and he'll crush you every time." It's like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, then uh, we have after the opening credits, we have. Uh, the contractually required visual of Kirk shirtless working out. Uh, this is going to be a standard feature of the original series. A medical exams in the future involve laying down on a bed and pumping your legs. Uh, yeah, on something. so That's- he's there. McCoy is having him do a stress test. Um, yes. and they've got this kind of. It's actually cool to look at. It's this upside down. You know, he's laying at an incline on a bed, and he's got his legs up on these two foot pedals on the ceiling that he's pushing to exercise and drive up his heart rate. And so that's an actual, that's a real medical test. I mean, they, there are yeah. stress tests that they do for your heart. Yes. And, um, but the fascinating thing is he's upside down for this. It's like, actually, that's less efficient than real life because in real life, they make you stand up and do this yes. on a treadmill. So you're fighting gravity. If you have, if you're laying on your back, you're making it easier on yourself. Yeah. You're not going to nope. stress as quickly. Maybe in no 100 wonder. years, they, they learn something about stress tests uh, and some magical medical thing. Well, and, and don't don't forget artificial gravity, yada, yada, techno babble, yeah. something Th- or another. Sure. <laughs> so it, now here we have so very keen insight. Our first experience of McCoy, we get a keen insight into the character. The, the red alert, Spock is called for red alert. It doesn't have the klaxon. We don't see the, we don't hear the sound. Right. And McCoy does not tell Kirk that they're at red alert. Presumably the ship is in danger that needs its captain on the bridge. And he doesn't tell that that should be a court martial events. I know this is bad writing on their part. It because there should be an audible signal that we're at red alert, like there is in real life when a Mm -hmm. ship goes on alert, and the captain should be informed immediately. Well, and and they did they did call you know general alert captain to the bridge. And meanwhile, the captain's down. I don't know if uh, McCoy turned McCoy's off the, the, the PA system or off. something. <laughs> yeah, yes. he turned off the PA system or something. Right. And then uh, uh, as as the captain leaves, complaining to the doctor didn't tell him, we get the first instance of McCoy's classic line, what am I, a doctor or, a, and in this case, a moon shuttle conductor. I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but that's Just the first use of the phrase. Just spacey sounding. Yes. 
Um, also, notice as soon as Kirk leaves sickbay, he's in the hallway. We've got lots of extras. Yes. Who will also be the same extras we see in every other hallway scene later in the episode. But, <laughs> right. um, but we've got lots of extras in the background, and that's characteristic of the early seasons because they wanted to show us that this is like a ship with 400 people. They're crammed in like they would be on a submarine. But mm-hmm. by the third season, the, the budget was so problematic, they couldn't afford extras, and we see almost all empty hallways. Yes, right. that's right. Uh, Kirk is walking through there, shirtless, towel around his neck, carrying his boots, wearing little slippers. I thought that was interesting. And then have him going to the bridge. He contacts Spock. He changes first. He changes before he goes to the bridge. Right. He says, uh, what's going on? Okay, I think I've got time to go get changed. So he goes to his quarters and gets changed. Uh, they're really casual about this cube. I mean, I'm just glad it's not a Borg cube. <laughs> you don't want to be that casual about cubes but all you the know, time. How many times do you see that in, in later later series, later Star Trek series, where Captain of the Bridge and, you know, 10 minutes later, after he's t- had time to get off the holodeck and jump in, you know, go to his quarters and change, and then he shows up <laughs> on the bridge. I always think the turbo lift is like the Batman's uh, pole in this cave. Whereas mm-hmm. they go through it, it changes them like a transporter. Um, <laughs> but that's just my headcanon. So Spock has determined that it's a device, not an object. That's a big thing. And then... Uh, or a device, we, not a ship. Sorry. A device, not a ship. I, I write it down, but I don't read what I write. So it's a device, <laughs> not a ship. And we get this interesting camera shot. As Kirk arrives on the bridge, the camera, it's ha- obviously being handheld, carried behind... Shatner as he walks out onto the bridge and we get this following shot. I this thought it was really an interesting cool. choice. Yeah, it's it's an interesting choice of shot. Um Bailey <laughs> B- wants Bailey to is, shoot it now. <laughs> I vote we blast it, and Kirk says correctly, I'll keep that in mind when this becomes a democracy. I, I know they're doing it to set up Bailey's near nervous breakdown later, but everybody you watch Kirk and Spock and they're just dumping on Bailey early on. They are not yep. nice to this guy. Well, they, they're, it's. I think McCoy calls it. They're at least from a from Kirk's point of view. He McCoy says, "Kirk, you you promoted him. You see something in him, and it's sort of your. You're, they're putting him through the through the fire. They're they're forging him into the officer that he thinks he should be. Uh, mm-hmm. And and Kirk doesn't. You know, he kind of almost overdoes it. But I think, and I want to kind of bring that out now in our discussion. This is a study in Kirk's command abilities." His leadership style. This, this episode gives us a yeah. real insight mm-hmm. into who Kirk is as captain of the yeah. ship, and I think it does a good job of that. And, and it does. This is one of the things that, even though this is a bottle episode, it works. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, this is this is a bunch of character studies all happening in front of us, and it works yeah. because it is so character driven. That's right, and that and that's what would have made it a great you know, after pilot episode of, okay, now you get to know who these people are. Right. Yeah. You really get a sense of all of the different characters. You really get it. We'll talk about McCoy, how he comes across in this one and the relationships between McCoy and Kirk and Spock and Kirk. And you get Scotty's personality, Sulu's personality. You even get Janice Rand's personality in this one, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, interesting uh, experience of the crew. It's really a, a, Character crew, crew intro show. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a character driven. I mean, there's a plot here, but character driven. So we have well, this. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say because it is interesting where the the actual bad guy of the episode, who isn't the one that they were talk they talk to, isn't you. You see him for like five minutes, right at the very end. Yeah. So 
uh, they have this briefing room uh, scene where they've been held Eight, by this. Eighteen hours later, they have they're half of them passed out. Wow, <laughs> are they patient in the twenty third century? Yeah, they, they look exhausted. <laughs> by the way, so Spock says there's a couple possibilities, but he thinks it's flypaper. It's designed to hold them in place until somebody else comes, which is an well, interesting it's been doing quick. a good job of that. <laughs> yeah. Kirk says, okay, it's time to take action. And Bailey totally jumps the gun, calling the phaser cannon station. Whoa, whoa, back off there, little boy, on the, uh, on the, on the trigger. And uh, Kirk, you know, kind of admonishes him again and says, uh, calculate a spiraling course away. We're going to slowly fly away from it. Well, it's, it's interesting by the mention, you know, the phaser can, cannon station. This is one of these where it's obvious they didn't have the technology down because they treated it more like a war, you know, modern day yeah. warship or submarine where right. if you fire your guns, it's not like there's a button on the, the bridge where the, the, the helmsman hits a button and it fires. Right. It's it, you call down to the gun control and right. that's yeah. who does the firing. They, well, and we later see the firing crew in uh, the balance of terror yes. uh, because a member mm. of the firing crew gets killed. Um, but in this one, Bailey is like says phaser crew reports ready. So they're clearly yep. not right. controlling the weaponry from the bridge directly. Yeah, in exactly. the 60s, there was there would be a crew in the Navy, there'd be a crew inside the turret on the ship, you know, directing it. Actually, right. today, the guns are remote controlled from the, the combat information center, not by the helmet, of course, but by the CIC. And so they're, they are they are actually more like Star Trek today than they were mm -hmm. then, which is just we can get into a whole circular thing with that. Uh, so they, they do try to fly away from it in a spiral course, and it comes at them. And starts radiate, radiate, radiating them. Sorry, from the short, them. Yeah, from the short end of the spectrum. Uh, the Spock says, uh, and Kirk is so calm throughout this encounter. Uh, if you notice, it, mm -hmm. Bailey's getting really tense, but Kirk is just calm. And Kirk eventually decides it's time to destroy the cube, and he gives Bailey the order. And even though Bailey was all hot up to blast this thing earlier, he freezes. Yes, yep. and this is his first real failure. Um, is he he freezes in a in a in a crucial situation? That's right. But then Sulu reaches over and 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 they like hit, clicks hit two the buttons button. and they destroy <laughs> the cube and get their course locked in and stuff. Right. And uh, so now we have we we have this moment where Kirk has to decide: do we move forward or do we go back? And of course, the mission is to explore. And and he has this little conversation with Spock where he asks Spock for his opinion, and Spock says. Um, you know, the well, if you're asking me for the logical de uh, decision, and he's about to say, we go back, and Kirk says, I'm not, I'm not actually interested in, in uh, we're going forward. And then Spock kind of complains, isn't it inefficient to ask me about things that when you've already made up your mind about, about them? <laughs> and Kirk says, it gives me emotional security. And he gets a smirk on his face because he knows that really will annoy Spock to, that it's, yep. he's giving him emotional security. So I thought that was good. Um, uh, and then, speaking speaking of emotional security, McCoy then yes. starts grilling Kirk in the turbo lift. So it's, this is private. He's not doing this in front of the crew. Yes. About have you promoted Bailey too fast? That mm -hmm. yes, Bailey did freeze in that moment, but it's a really tough job. Even a seasoned officer would have trouble doing the job Bailey is doing, and he is not a seasoned officer yet. Have you promoted him too fast because you see something in him that reminds you of you? Right. right. You you of eleven years ago, he says. And it's interesting that we what we're seeing now is like how Spock helps Kirk, you know, in making the tough strategic and tactical decisions, whereas McCoy balances out uh, Kirk as leader of a crew. 
and mm-hmm. and and those and this is the the balance we're going to see throughout this series. It really defines Star Trek. This triumvirate. And, and, and this is this was not originally planned. Initially, d- at this point in the series production, DeForest Kelly is not a regular. He is mm-hmm. he. They hired him for like eight episodes, and and he he was just a character they were trying out. But he worked so well opposite Spock, they decided to make right. him a regular, and eventually he gets promoted to the main credits alongside William Shatner and uh, and Leonard Nimoy. And it's, right. you can see the evolution from Boyce, from the cage, the original pilot, how he mm-hmm. was the, the, the captain's confidant, his sounding board. And McCoy acts that way a bit in this one. And, uh, yeah. he, and so he has this moment, and they have this ongoing conversation that takes him to Kirk's quarters. I like the fact that Kirk keeps quoting McCoy, and McCoy denies. I I never say that. I never like, say that. Yeah, you yeah. always say suffering's good for the soul. I never say that. Like why? Yeah. So I like that. They do, then, they do that like twice in this episode, at least, where Kirk quotes something he thinks McCoy always says, and McCoy denies it. McCoy yeah. is a bit of a you know font of Southern wisdom uh, throughout this series. So uh, I can see where where Kirk would come up with that. So then we get to Janice Rand shows up with Kirk's dinner because he's that captain who forgets to eat and doesn't take care of himself and needs someone to help him. And she and brings him. Wh- so, of course, she's brought him something with no calories. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes, but he's gained a couple of pounds, according to McCoy. Yeah. yeah. Kirk complains it's green leaves. He doesn't even call it a salad. And, <laughs> and, she, and she calls it a dietary salad. Now, when again. This is the 60s. This is uh, the era in which the idea of dieting was still relatively new from uh, from, uh, the concept that we have. So you would call things a dietary salad uh, when you're trying to lose weight. Um, And then Kirk eventually just complained, stop hovering. And then uh, says, "Uh, bring a salad for McCoy. He's going to punish McCoy with a salad. And he's like, oh, no, I never eat until the crew eats, which is. He's the mom. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, also they've just been boozing it up in the middle of this, you know, tense interstellar (laughs) situation right before Rand comes in. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's the 60s again, cocktail hour. You know, you got to have your martini or whatever, your your scotch on the rocks. I mean, Uh, if this this had been, uh, um, was it Mad Men? The, the. Yes, nineteen fifty. Yeah. You know, they they had the the, the cigarette in one hand and the, the whiskey in the other. You know, exactly, exactly. So uh, then, Kirk complains about some uh, some idiot at, at headquarters the, who assigned the, him a female the, yeoman. Yeah, the line is when I as Rand is walking out of the room. When I get my hands on the headquarters genius that assigned me a female yeoman, and it's <laughs> and like, McCoy- wow, does that line not age well? <laughs> no <laughs> yes. kidding. Well, McCoy insinuates that Kirk is attracted to her, that he won't be able to control himself. Yeah. And then Kirk yeah, says, says I already- what, you don't trust yourself? Yeah. Well, it- but, you know, that that's an echo of, uh, again, going back to the cage where, uh, you know, it's the, the, there's the female officer on the bridge and, and he, he uh, yep. says, I'm not used to having women on the bridge. Not counting you, number one. None taken. No offense. And then I think what that is, is it's their way of hanging a lantern on it for this 1960s audience, because right, the right. 60s audience is not used to seeing women in these roles. In uniform, and so this in is military. their way of acknowledging yeah. it and moving on. Right. Yeah. I mean, women were in the the, the wave or whack or you know, auxiliary during the war. But at mm-hmm. this point, you know, there were nurses in the nurses corps, but not regular serving. The, the idea of the personal assistant of the captain. Well, the right. idea of women even serving on a warship, although, ship. you know, yeah, the Enterprise yeah. is not a warship, yada, yada, yada. The fact that women would be serving on a ship like this would, you know, that would put them in danger was right. completely un- 
thinkable in the 60s. And it really wasn't until the 80s, 90s, the 80s that the U.S. Yeah. Navy started doing that. Yeah. Yes, yes. What, what I find interesting about this is the idea that headquarters would have determined who Kirk's yeoman would be. Um, I, I, I would think that uh, for someone who works that closely with a captain, because uh, the captain's yeoman is basically his personal assistant. Mm-hmm. And and I would think that the captain would have a voice in the selection of his yeoman. If you're right. someone who's basically running like this is the equivalent of a, you know, an aircraft carrier or a nuclear submarine, I would think the captain would have some voice in selecting that person. Does that right. correspond to your experience, uh, Father Corey, in the military uh, or would it yeah. would it just be here's your here's your person? Yeah, I think there I think it would be kind of a yes or no. I think it depend on your position, but I think, you know, for a lot of, again, being Air Force, the generals would, you know, they, they'd show up with their assignment and here's whoever is assigned to your, to, as your secretary, you know, right. who's, here's, here's your person, you know. And of course, depending if you're talking about like on a ship versus like a, a permanent base, it might be a, a civilian versus a military uh, enlisted. So it, mm-hmm. it I, I, I don't know, again, I don't know, like when you're talking like the really high ranks, you know, the high admirals, the high generals, you know, mm-hmm. even like, again, captains of their ships if they would have um, personal assistants that they chose, or if it would be just, so here's someone who's assigned of this career field to do that work, I, uh, that clerical work. I don't know. I think in general, it's, it's the, we're assigning someone to you. And unless they're incompetent, that's, this is their assignment. Like you yeah. don't really get a say unless there's yeah. a clear, a clear problem with them. Exactly. I, I, I could, I can certainly see, and that may well be right. I could certainly see it like if you're taking over a command, you're going to work with whoever's already there. Mm-hmm. But then when that person moves on, I would think you'd have a voice in, okay, I want to give this new person a chance or something. Yeah. I, I maybe think, maybe I, I'm wrong. There could be a little of both. I mean, because they're, they're definitely... Kirk has been here for a while. This is yep. not. Kirk has not just taken over this command. The uniforms have even changed since he took over the Enterprise. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, I, I mean, again, it's whatever the 23rd yeah. century does yeah. to you. But, but the, yeah, I, I could see, especially where they're going out on a five-year mission, they're far out, that sort of thing. You know, you're yep. not going to be back at base to reassign people. Well, the other thing that's interesting with this is he says, I already have a woman to worry about, the Enterprise. And I think this is the first introduction also of that idea that there's this relationship that Kirk has with the ship itself that goes beyond mm-hmm. just I'm the custodian of a vehicle, but he feels a real connection to the ship. Uh, so that, well, that, that was a fairly standard trope in this kind of literature. Right. Yes. But it, it, yes. it's also kind of a, a kind of a wink and a nod to the fact that the ship, the Enterprise becomes as much a character as any of the human actors. Mm-hmm. In, you know, it's it, not maybe I don't know. So much, I can't speak so much about TOS, but in other series, it really does become as much a character as anything else. It's not just a bunch of sets. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's true. It's uh, the so, captain's wife. It's like the TARDIS is the doctor's wife. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so uh, we we have uh, the uh, the ship that sent out this buoy show up called the the Fasarius. We'll find that out in a second. And it puts the Enterprise in a tractor beam. I notice, and it's enormous. Well, it's before, like yeah. before we before we get to that, uh, we the the ship shows up, puts the Enterprise in a tractor beam, and Spock yells, "We're in a tractor beam!" 
Uh, didn't you yell at Bailey yeah. for getting all adrenaline? Yeah, exactly. Earlier? Maybe you should have that adrenal gland removed from your or your half adrenal gland or whatever it is. Yeah, he only so, got one because he's yeah. half human. Yeah, that's what it is. But you're right, Jimmy. Yeah, it's an enormous ship. Uh, what they say it was like a mile, um, over a mile in diameter, and it's just huge compared to the Enterprise. And I really like that. It's a big sphere of made of glowing mm-hmm. little sm- smaller orbs. Um, but it's huge compared to the Enterprise. The Enterprise is tiny yeah, in the face yeah. of this thing, and it's a very vivid visual demonstration of the superiority of mm-hmm. this other group. So this is a real threat to the Enterprise, and that's communicated to us visually. Right, yeah. right. And then we have, um, uh, we, we find out that the reason we weren't, they, that the Enterprise was not able to communicate with the space buoy is that they communicate using a, on a different frequency. They, they're they communicating via that navigation beam, Bailey says, and Although that's why they why weren't hearing from them. If the Viserius can send them a message over the nav system, why didn't the cube? Well, the, presumably it was, and they just didn't notice it. I think that's the implication. Yeah. I, that's what yeah. I took from it. Also, the so okay, so they identify themselves to the Fasarius as the United Earthship Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Which would suggest that it, the that this is really a human thing, and Spock is here for some other reason. But we've achieved a United Earth, yes, right, and that's the main political entity in control. The, the idea of the Federation hadn't yet been determined yet. And so actually, if you uh, watch these early episodes in the first season, they say they don't say they're from Starfleet. They say they're from the United Earth Space Probe Agency, or USPA, as they'll abbreviate it. Yeah, this is actually the only time they'll ever identify them as the United Earth Starship Enterprise, this this one. But you're right, right. The the idea of a federation of aliens. In fact, Kirk says a lot of, you know, says several times this episode, speaking of aliens you know that who mm-hmm. aren't like us and he's really talking about you know non-humans Correct. except yeah. in you mr spock of course <laughs> that sort of thing so it's a very interesting non-taken yes uh and so balok maybe they get the idea from federation from the name mm-hmm. of balok's right. group which is the first federation the first um, yeah he says i'm balok commanding officer of the flagship Viserys, um and your vessel Obviously, the product of a primitive and savage civilization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, having, aren't we yeah. high and mighty and superior? Yes. Having ignored a warring buoy and then yeah. having destroyed it. S- sneer much? Yes, exactly. he basically says yeah, that, that means you need to be destroyed. Uh, we're, we're, well, we're now we're, we're, we're wondering we're whether to dest- we're, we're, yeah. we're more advanced and not as savage as you, so we'll destroy you. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, that, okay, if that thing was a warning buoy... Why did it stop us from leaving? You know, we tried to right. retreat and go away, and it stopped yeah. us. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that. Well, and we'll find out why at the end. I mean, that they they do yeah. bring bring it all together. Uh, so Kirk tries to talk to him, and Balak disables their communications. Yeah, and um, starts scanning them like crazy, and shutting off certain Enterprise systems, but not others. Yes. Yeah, Spock, Spock notes it's only some systems that are going offline. Including the galley, apparently. Uh, <laughs> when they dispatch a record marker buoy, they want to they leave the ship's log so that others can find them. Uh, Balak destroys it, obviously. I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised that he would yeah. destroy it if he's holding them. E- even and though then, they put in the marker buoy, don't come this way. Stay <laughs> right. away. Yeah, this is more indication that either we've got major plot holes or there's some kind of mind game. 
Right. And worked on us here, yep. which and it turns out it's the latter. And he tells it, them, we're going to kill you, uh, but we're going to give you 10 of your Earth minutes to pray before you die. We make assumption I, I you have a that. deity or deities or some such beliefs which comfort you. Therefore, we grant you 10 minutes to make preparations. I like that they do that. That's really <laughs> nice. Yes. It, the interesting idea that, that advanced civilizations would understand that there yeah. is a god or that other civilizations have a god. Now, would, if they... If they came yeah. back and say, guys, the Bajoran death chants take 48 hours, they would have had more time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're going to respect our culture, respect our culture. Well, was Bajor even known at that point? So No, yeah. no but I'm, I'm being, <laughs> cold, I know, I'm being sly. Uh, so um, now McCoy shows up and tells Kirk, oh, that voice was heard all over the ship. So Kirk but he mispronounces the name. He says Balok. It's, Balok. Uh, this <laughs> always happens in sci-fi shows where they're inventing words that people don't know. And not right. every they like the dialogue coach doesn't tell you how to how to read this word. So even right. though Balok has clearly said his name is Balok, McCoy shows up and says Balok. Well, well but that fits so with kind of the southern. In you the, know, it, people in the south can pronounce long A's. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. it, it, presumably, the uh, voiceover with Balok was done at a different time. But yeah, but uh, what I find interesting about this is that Kirk. Hearing this from, from McCoy says, okay, I need to get on the ship wide, intercom, and give words of encouragement to the crew. Just to kind of, <laughs> we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> well, he says, yeah, right. He says something interesting. There's no such thing as the unknown, only the temporarily hidden or not understood, which I think is the and, definition of unknown, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Also, he, he the, but what's important is the way he sets that up. He says the biggest danger is ourselves, the irrational fear of the unknown. And it's like, right. okay, message coming in, sir. This is what Star Trek yeah. is all about. The biggest right. danger is ourselves and our irrational fear of the unknown. And once we get to know the other people, we'll be able to work with them unless they're the Borg. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, meanwhile, Bailey goes catatonic and then freaks out. <laughs> he has, he has, Bailey has a major freak out. Why are you all just sitting around doing nothing? Yeah, it's and, great. And Sulu, I love how Sulu is just there really calm. And it's like, we have four minutes now. And yeah. Bailey is like, and he's doing a countdown. <laughs> I love yeah, the exactly. fourth wall breaking on this. Like, because this is <laughs> something that they always do. They do a countdown. He's like, why are you counting it down? We can all read the clock. And even, well, even later on, Scotty will call him on it. Like, uh, what is it with your irrational love of a clock, Mr. Of timepieces, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have an annoying fascination for timepieces, yeah. he says. <laughs> by, by the way, we should we should mention um, what they've just seen right before this, because right. Spock is able to hack into the communications system of the Fasarius somehow and turn mm. on a camera over there so they can see the person they're dealing with. Yes. And this isn't essential that he does it. He just says he's curious what they look like. And so we get this weird, distorted effect. It looks like it's kind of underwater or something, except it's not mm -hmm. really water, um, right. of this scary puppet-headed guy who has, and it's clearly a puppet, you know, but they put this distortion right. over the effect over it to kind of mask that. Um, but it's like a bold alien, bald, thin alien, kind of looks like Ming the Merciless without a goatee. Yeah. Or Nosferatu. He's got... Puppet eyes that go one way or another, and his mouth moves in a kind of puppety fashion. Yeah, um, but he's scary looking. 
is the this point. This freaked me out as a kid. I did not like this mm. episode. <laughs> when I was a kid and I saw this, I'm like, I do not like that scary alien. Well, and, well and then they use this this image of this this scary alien like in the end credits from then of on. Every yeah. episode. Series. Stop doing that. You're scaring me. <laughs> what, what I liked even better than this was the Tholian when they eventually get oh, to yeah. see the Tholian commander. And it's like, ooh, glowing crystal alien. Yes. Uh, I thought it was interesting that even though they remastered all the special effects, they kept the same effect for uh, Blaylock. Uh, ba- Baylock. Baylock. I was thinking Julian Blaylock. Baylock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here. Uh, probably because they see it in person at the end of the episode. But mm-hmm. still, it's very it's the same effect. I thought that was interesting. Um, so Spock, at, at, at this point, is about to say sorry to Kirk. He, in fact, he interrupts himself. Yeah. I'm I'm. S- I regret that I have no other <laughs> logical alternatives. Yeah. By to the offer way, they, re- you at this point. they relieve Bailey, so they send him out and tell Mc- Kirk tells McCoy to take him to his quarters. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, it's interesting how, uh, yeah. So we have Bailey's out, and people are starting. The nerves are starting to fray. Kirk is not as calm and in control as he was. He's starting to get a little more afraid. Spock is a little more afraid. Uh, McCoy. Comes back and challenges. Well, before then, Spock says, yeah. "I have." When he's saying, "I'm sorry, I don't have any alternatives," he compares it to chess and yes. says, "In chess, when you're overwhelmed, it's just checkmate, and that's all there is to it, and that's the situation we're in." Mm-hmm. Right, right. And Kirk obviously does not want to, you know, give up. He doesn't believe in the no-win situation, right? Ne- never right. give up. Never surrender. Oh wait, that's a different. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> show. Yeah. I don't believe in the Kobayashi Maru. So uh, <laughs> McCoy comes back, and in the midst of this crisis, when I know. they have. Seven minutes left. Three. No, at this point, it's three minutes left right. before they're all dead. McCoy comes back and tells Kirk, he picks a fight with Kirk, tells him yeah. he wants to enter Bailey's condition in his medical log that's about to be obliterated as <laughs> yeah. simple fatigue instead of hysteria. And when Kirk doesn't go along with that, he threatens to report Kirk in his medical reports that no one's ever going to see because they're about to all be blown up. And then Kirk bites his head off. And so they're right. having this really catty spat <laughs> here as they're all about to die. Well, about it, who's going to report who and say what? It starts out, they're keeping it quiet. They're talking, you know, quietly to one another, like in a sort of an aside. Uh, but yeah, McCoy, this is not the time. No, in the midst time of this and a situation. place, dude. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so Kirk orders, Kirk orders him to drop it. And when he does it, that's when he, you know, uh, blows up at him. And later on, Kirk will apologize for blowing up, and McCoy will admit his timing was bad. But but at this point, McCoy says, "You know, I'm not bluffing about reporting you." And Kirk's like, "What are you talking about right now?" Exactly. I like, but dude, I need to be thinking about how we're going to save our uh, save our yes. lives. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. But this gives Kirk the idea for the bluff about mm-hmm. Corbomite, in which mm-hmm. he he says he tells Balok it's a material device. That will blow up with equal intensity on you, uh, when you with whatever you shoot us with. Whatever you hit, we I'm rubber. You know, you're rubber and I'm glue, or whatever it is. And yeah, exactly. whatever you shoot at me sticks sticks on you. The, he first though he tells Spock, not chess, Mister Spock, poker. Right, right. So he's uh, going to take McCoy's idea of I'm not bluffing and turn it into a bluff for the Fisarians. Mm-hmm. Right now, the, it doesn't seem to have an effect. Spock thinks it's failed. Um, and then while they're waiting, as the clock ticks down, Spock is kind of like, well, Balak kind of reminds me of my father. And Scotty <laughs> says, heaven help your mother. 
Yeah, and Spock and says, Sp- she thought herself a lucky uh, Earth woman. <laughs> and and yeah. so this is the first time in the second pilot, Spock had said, one of my ancestors was human. Now we learn it's his mom. Yes. Yep. Uh, in the last minute, Bailey comes back to the bridge and asks to be, you know, to die at his station. So he gets some redemption there. Mm -hmm. A couple of other things earlier in this. So one of the things that was always left vague in the original series was exactly when this is in the future. Um, but this episode surprisingly gives us a pretty clear time frame. Uh, because Spock, Kirk says to the aliens that the Corbomite, you know, it's been because they've had their records scanned. Mm -hmm. So he says the Corbomite has always been kept secret. And this makes no sense, frankly. It's like, yeah, if you're building a doomsday device, why don't you tell the world? (laughs) Right. Dr. Um, Strange, love. (laughs) Yeah. um, You want to you have this device. You want to let people know about it so they don't try this. Exactly. Um, but uh, he says it's since the early days of spaceflight, it's been on all of our ships, and since it's in the Corbomite device, and since its initial use two centuries ago, mm-hmm. no no attacking ship has survived. So that tells us that well, okay, we know when the early days of spaceflight is. That's like 1960s or within a century mm-hmm. of that, and yep. add a couple more centuries for the since the fictional first use of the Corbomite device. And that t- gives us the approximate time frame of the original series. Right. The 22nd or 23rd century. And later on in TNG, it'll get settled as the 23rd century. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so uh, they, they count it down and they pass the deadline. Uh, the, as as uh, Sulu at one point says, if anyone's interested, it's 30 seconds left. <laughs> like he cannot help himself. I have to count <laughs> it down. And he does it from 10 even. And... Uh, and they, they pass it, and they wait another minute, and they kind of breathe easy. And then McCoy says uh, to Spock, I'm going to teach you poker sometime. Yeah. <laughs> and that's this is the moment when uh, Janice Rand shows up again. Yeah. Uh, bringing coffee to the bridge. Uh, Actually, she, there's a little bit before that. So the Baylock gets on the phone again and tells them, we have delayed your destruction, but we want, in order to cancel it, we want proof of Corbomite. And, and Kirk, like, says says let him sweat and yeah. then doesn't yep. answer and then when he when he when he says okay pick up the line request denied and he gives the you know kill the cut line yep. you know cut signal and uh and so that's all he all he says and at that point Rand comes up and it's like now we've all survived it's time to have coffee <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm waiting for the ad it's maxwell house in the future <laughs> oh, uh, and 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 coffee in basically silver Silver painted styrofoam cups. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Because I love everything is chrome. I, I love. I love how because the galley's been shut down. Uh, she McCoy is like, "How did you make this coffee?" And it's like, "I just hand phasered it, <laughs> <laughs> zap, and it hot instant hot coffee." And it, that's it, right. I'm like, that is so cool. That reveals Janice Rand's personality to us. Mm-hmm. She like, is she the efficient is, yeoman. She's yeah. gonna. She's practical. She's gonna. She is committed to doing her job, as ridiculous it's, as it is. She's she's committed to doing her job, and she's going to do whatever she needs to to accomplish what she wants. Yep. Right. And coffee, you know, it's, it's all purpose. Whatever you need in that in a tense situation is coffee. Yep. So Balok <laughs> switches gears and says, "Okay, now, and not instead of destroying you, I'm going to strand you on a planet, and so and destroy the Enterprise. Then, so I'm going to take you in tow and take you to that planet." 
and they and so a smaller ship breaks off from the big mile wide ship yeah. mm-hmm. and does the towing. I'm not sure so, why yeah. so, that so would be necessary. The, the big ship looks like a big sphere made out of small little round lights. And mm-hmm. several of the little round lights break off. And at first I thought there were four lights. <laughs> but but I counted and there are five lights in the little small <laughs> ship that takes them in tow. And Balok says he's in that ship. So he's right. personally towing them to the planet where he's going to strand them. Now, they want to see if they can break away. And they, they notice over time, they, their theory is over that the, this is a big strain on this little ship. And they notice over time that they're starting to slow down a little, that the tractor beam is getting a little weaker. And so that Kirk says, all right, now's the time. So they tax his engines by trying to break away. We have this long sequence where they're straining and they're about to be destroyed and the engines overheat by thousands of degrees. And, and, and as they're doing that, we can see the tug, tug of war visually because the little five light ship is pulsing brighter and brighter. Right. As that's and then, happening. It's having to expend more energy to keep them in tow. And the Enterprise is shaking, and we get that because there's the corridor shorts where every shots where everybody is flailing from one side of the corridor yeah. <laughs> then to the other side of the corridor. In, so the synchronization, the inertial, the inertial dampers can't quite keep you from being s- smashed, but they're <laughs> yeah. good enough that you're not well, completely turned into a puddle. Maybe that's one of the systems that's been disabled by Baylock. Yeah. Well, if also, they were also, completely disabled, they'd be puddles of goo. Also, yeah. Also, I like that um, we get to see exactly the same corridor extras we saw scenes and scenes earlier. It's like, yeah, we're getting closure on those guys. We bonded them in the first time we saw them in the corridor, and now we see what's happening <laughs> in the to same their corridor individual too. story arcs. Yeah. <laughs> you just wander around the corridors, go do something. <laughs> so, so the Baylock ship is disabled, and he's in need apparently. Yeah. And we uh, know it's disabled because it ceases pulsing, and we right. can, it's no longer glowing. And he sends out a distress signal, but it's the signal is too weak. It would it wouldn't be picked up by the Fasarians, which is now so far away. So Kirk says, "All right, we're going to show them what we're made of. We're going to rescue. We're going to take a rescue." And he decides to take McCoy and Bailey. McCoy because if Baylock is injured, and uh, Bailey for because redemption personal purposes. story arc. Yes, yep. he's going to redeem him. Uh, Scotty in the transporter room says, "You'll want to crouch down, gentlemen. <laughs> it's a crap space over there." So and they so they kind of hunch over a little bit. I hope they hunched over enough. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I think that Scotty presumably had some measurement that was telling him, okay, they're hunched yeah. over enough to I, transport yeah. into the space. That if I were I'm, Scotty, I'd be like, lower, lower. I would have them like kneeling down and then bring them over and have like a twelve foot ceiling. But it is nice because, as we're going to learn, the alien actually is tiny by Earth standards, and so his ship is yes. built to scale. They don't have eight foot, ten foot ceilings over there, mm-hmm. right? And so they realize they find out that the Baylock that they saw on the screen was a dummy, and that the real Baylock looks like a big baby, which is yeah, yeah. But in fact, it is six year old Clint Howard who plays yes. Baylock, Ron Howard's I think he's brother, seven at this time. Well, what I saw said six, but maybe you're mm-hmm. right. Uh, but in every case, he's, he's young. Uh, yep. He's Ron Howard's brother. Ron Howard, who would be Opie at the time, would be Opie in um, Mayberry. Mayberry, Andy yes. Griffith's show. Andy, yep. Andy Griffith's show, right. And would later on, Clint Howard has an acting career as an adult. In fact, he was in Discovery last mm-hmm. season. He's, at the he's actually been in every major season or series or time frame, if you will, of, of uh, Star Trek's episodes. Yeah. He was in Enterprise as uh, one of the, the Frangie. 
He was in DS9 as a homeless guy in the the past tense episode where they go back right. to San Francisco. Um, yep. And then he was the creepy Orion who tried to steal the uh, demolition device from from a Tilly. That's yeah. right. That's right. Drugged yeah. her out and tried to steal the device. <laughs> what do you expect <laughs> me to do? I'm an Orion. Yeah. <laughs> he, he also has a guest part in the series Fringe, which is not a Star Trek series, but he plays a crazy man who tells the Fringe characters that the Romulans are doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Another yeah, Star Trek he, connection. Now, he kinda, he, he's yeah, he's made a career out of just kind of odd, strange looking people because he's an odd, strange looking person. And and being in his in in his brother's movies, which is, yeah. you know, yeah. it helps to have your brother's director. Now, even though he's like six or seven years old at this point, we don't hear his voice. Part of what's nope. unnatural right. about him. So they've they put a bald cap on him and they put a kind of weird gossamery, shimmery costume on him and they've given him big artificial red eyebrows yes and he actually if you look at at Baylock, the puppet and compare it to clint howard it's like okay this is like a distorted version of the same race maybe yeah you know, like they're both bald and stuff like that but Baylock is much taller more sinister looking and Baylock has this you have 10 minutes voice the puppet Baylock. The puppet yeah. Baylock, but then yeah. the actual Baylock is they've they have dubbed an adult voice, but it's a it's a high pitched male voice, right? So mm-hmm. it has this extra unnatural quality that doesn't look right coming out of the mouth of a child, and it's like this is Tranya. I hope you relish it as much as I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have it. It is kind of creepy. They, the dubbing is well done. I mean, they when they did this back in the day, you know, uh, whoever dubbed over Clint Howard's voice kept the mm-hmm. mouth movements, and that all worked out. Uh, and so they never come out and say it exactly, but the presumption is because Baylock's species is smaller compared to pretty much all the other species we see in the in Star Trek. They're all mm-hmm. generally human sized or bigger. Some are smaller, but most are mm-hmm. bigger. Uh, that. This would be a a natural way of being like, imagine if we went out into the galaxy and we found out that all other species in the galaxy were 10 feet tall and bigger. Uh, That would, we would have to figure out ways that they would respect us and not stomp all over us uh, out there. So that's, that's presumably the idea. And that this is all, has all been a test. He had no intention of killing them, destroying them, but he wanted to test humans and see, you know, are they Mm -hmm. peaceful? What kind of people, people are they? And and he knows he even he compares uh, the puppet to himself as he's the Mister Hyde to my Doctor Jekyll, right? Yep. And it's like okay, and so you're immediately wondering, okay, yeah, you scan their record banks, you know enough to know about Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Why would you put them through this elaborate series of mind games? And he and he says, and Kirk asks him the question, so they hang a lantern on it. Yeah. And um, and he says, well, you could have it, it could have been a deception. And it's like, yeah, OK, that paper's over it, but it's not really a satisfying <laughs> explanation. If you well, read their entire cultural history, that's going to really tell you who they are. You don't this is the one little test. I mean, if they're deceptive enough to plant a completely fictitious history with a fictitious psychological portrait of who they are in their computer banks. Mm-hmm. They're deceptive enough to trick you now, yeah. which they did with the Corbomite. <laughs> yeah, so that doesn't really hang together, but they do have a paper explanation for it. Yeah. Also, the Tranya that they drank, there's a, I, there are different accounts about what the Tranya actually was. Um, I, I, according to one account I've seen, uh, Clint Howard said it was grapefruit juice. 
Another one, though, I, my memory is Clint Howard said it was apricot juice, and mm-hmm. uh, Shatner said it was apricot juice that they had put food coloring in. Either way, um, Clint Howard hated it as a little <laughs> kid, and yeah. his dad, Rance Howard, who also has a career in sci-fi and appeared as Captain Sheridan's father in Babylon 5, um, Rance Howard said, you're going to drink that. And so he did. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So and then uh, we have this proposition of a cultural and information exchange, and Bailey's going to stay behind with uh, with uh, uh, Baylock and learn as much as he can about the First Federation, etc., and teach him about us and our our adrenal glands and problems with hysteria. <laughs> that's right. He <laughs> says, "Oh, you must be the best of uh, humanity," and he says, "Far from it, but maybe that's a better way for you to learn about us." So we can hope. So. Uh, so that's any other notes, uh, Father Corey? Anything else nope. on that? Okay, Jimmy, how about you? Anything else to say? I was just sorry that after spending all this, I mean, we get, this is a character study show, and so we learn a lot about our main characters, especially Kirk. But we also learn about McCoy, who's going to become a main character. We learn a little. We learn a little bit about Spock. We learn lesser amounts about the others, but a little bit. But the person other than Kirk that we learn most about is Bailey. Yeah. And this is his only appearance. Yeah. They should they, they, they should have made him a main character after this, and we should have seen his ongoing story arc and ma- mm-hmm. maturation as a navigator. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting idea, that we should have seen him growing. I mean, if it, it, today, that would be much more yeah. likely. That would be. Yeah. They apparently did have him in some drafts of later scripts as they were being written, but he never made it to screen again. Mm, interesting. So uh, I do want to, before we finish, I want to have, uh, we have some feedback from some listeners, or at least one listener. We have an email from James Cook, who asks, uh, just curious, do any of your Secrets of Star Trek episodes, especially those focusing on DS9, discuss the that other space station series, Babylon 5, which aired mm-hmm. about the same time as DS9? My cable service carries the Comet channel, which has been re-airing Babylon 5 Ooh, the past nice. few months. And watching them, I recalled how much more I enjoyed Babylon 5 over DS9. And then says an, a Secrets of Star Trek episode comparing them might be interesting. But, mm-hmm. And I, I imagine we did we have brought it up uh, in our right. overview of yeah. DS9 and, and in particular episodes. And they will continue to do that, compare it where, they, where they're compar- uh, com- it would, comparable. It would, it would even be worth having a taking a Secrets of Star Trek episode and devoting it to comparisons to, w- between DS9 and, ba- mm-hmm. and Babylon 5. Before we can do that, though, I'm going to actually have to watch Babylon 5. So oh, never really? watched. <gasps> yes. yes, I have not watched uh, everything. Well, I, uh, in my defense, and I think I mentioned this before, when where where I was living when Babylon Five was on, I did not have access to the that cable channel, whichever yeah, cable see, channel it was. I, so, I had uh, the same problem, but I went back. I guess actually, this was probably fifteen years ago now, uh, and <laughs> sat down. This it was before I actually it was longer than that because before I went to the seminary, uh, but sat uh-huh. down and did the you know yeah. did the entire. It was like when Netflix finally got, or, or yeah, Netflix was still doing just DVDs. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> so I just, I would just do the DVDs of Babylon Five and went through the pre-streaming. Yes. I, I was a huge fan of of Babylon Five, and I there's a fascinating behind the scenes stuff between the two shows. There, famously, there's a controversy about it, to what extent is DS Nine a ripoff of mm-hmm. Babylon Five, um, and the answer is it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but uh but there are other things like you know the there's the episode of of ds9 where they have they play baseball against the vulcans Mm -hmm. 
And that's inspired by a real life softball game that they had against the uh, the crew of Babylon Five. And so you know how the 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 team on 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 DS Nine are the Niners because of DS Nine. That's inspired by the fact that when their cast played the cast and crew of Babylon Five, the Babylon Five people all had jerseys with the number. Five. Five. It's like, <laughs> there's no law against this, so we're all number five. That's awesome. That's, That's funny. Good. Yeah, so uh, we often get people recommending, can you do a show about or uh, talk about, you know, different other properties? But the the limitation is, is someone le- leading the discussion has to have watched them. So we'll, yes. well, we'll there's, take there's that. There's that limitation and there's the limitation of, of time as well as there's lots yeah. of series we would love to have discussions about, and actually taking the time to do that is yeah. a whole nother story. Uh, I think but, we can uh, make this one work, though. I'll, I've got an yeah. idea how we could do it. Okay. Cool. But but the, the, the odds of these things uh, happening are much higher if we have your financial support that provides us with the ability to do yes. it. Yes, yes. <laughs> because if the limitation is time, because there's so much to, to be done. We have uh, right now about a dozen podcast shows out there, so that's a, that's a lot of organizing and recording and all that sort of thing. And I mention that now because this is when we want to take a moment to thank the, our patrons who do make it possible for us to create Secrets of Star Trek and all of the shows we do on StarQuest. And uh, I want to especially thank to this week John K, Chris, John D, Joseph F, and Ronald S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com make this possible. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give, and maybe we can have the resources to do a show about your favorite thing, too. So it makes it more possible, that's for sure. So that's it from us. What did you think of the original series, The Corbomite Maneuver? Was it one of your favorites? Was it good? What do you think of what we had to say about it? Go to sqpn.com slash trek or the SQPN Facebook page and leave us some comments about it. Leave us some feedback. We'll read your feedback in a future show, perhaps. Or you can send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next generations, the naked now. You're welcome. (laughs) 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 Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember... If I jumped every time a light came on around here, I'd end up talking to myself. <laughs>